So this Lent, we're thinking about how to think, how to think Christianly. That is, how to discern the direction of God and which direction God might want us to take with our lives as we navigate our whole lives God's ways. And you may well have noticed that each week the the truck, the little red lorry, as we would say over there, has been moving around this complex magic roundabout which so aptly symbolizes the many turning points that we have in life. And there have been some complaints that the lorry has been going around the roundabout the British way, and I'm sorry about that. It's just occurred to me. This place is so weird. This, this thing which many of you are looking up on YouTube and watching is so wacky that you can actually go around this roundabout of roundabouts in any direction you like. You can just go wherever you like on this thing. It is absolute carnage. Bit like some of our lives, you might be thinking. Chaotic, difficult, complex, full of many turning points and different ways to go. And the problem is that many of these turning points are just difficult to navigate. Getting it right is hard. We don't always know where to turn. And when the commanding scripture and the compelling spirit and the counsel of the saints has not been sufficient to give you real clarity about the way that God wants you to go. When that has not guided you and you still feel lost, sometimes what you need from God is a sign. That's what we're looking at today. What do I mean by a sign? Let's look at Matthew chapter 16. And uh, while you turn to Matthew 16, good news, the daughters of the king have agreed to sew ribbons into our Bibles so that we can do this thing Occasionally, we preach thematically. There's three different passages to look at and a psalm today. You kind of need to be in them. Otherwise, you won't get what I'm talking about, and you'll do the I don't get what you're talking about face, which is so discouraging to the preacher. So please uh, do look at Matthew uh, 16. Matthew chapter 16, verse 4, Jesus is speaking, and he says this on the subject of signs. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Not exactly a glowing endorsement of the fourth CS, is it? Doesn't exactly sound like he's in favor of signs. No sign for you. Come back three weeks. Some context for you. There are signs and there are signs. Notice the difference. Not all signs are the same thing. And Jesus here is not talking about the kind of subtle signs, the signs for direction, the the, the circumstantial signs that we're examining today that help us make decisions today. Not talking about those kind of signs. He's talking here about the far more fundamental kind of sign that we need for salvation. There is just one of those. Some more context for us. Signs and signs. Uh, This in verse 1 is clearly an encounter not with believers or people who could become believers, but rather with his enemies who approach him. Pharisees and Sadducees hated each other, but they agreed on one thing. They hated Jesus more. They've come here looking for trouble. It's not, therefore, a genuine question for a sign of direction or a genuine question for a sign of salvation. But as it says here in verse 1, it is a test. They have come here to test Jesus with this 
uh, request for a sign. And they challenge him. They say, do a sign. You could translate that word miracle. Do a miracle. Do a trick. You know, come on, birthday party clown. Do a balloon animal. Raise the dead. You know, calm a storm. Blow something up. Do a sign. Do a show. Do something for us to prove who you really are. And they're hoping that he won't. In fact, they know he won't because in Matthew 12, he says he's had enough of them and he's not going to do any more signs in front of them because they won't believe them anyway. So knowing that Jesus won't perform a trick for them and demonstrate who he is, they ask him to do it in front of everybody, knowing that when he refuses, they can turn to the crowd and they can say, look, this guy's a fraud. He can't do anything. He claims to be God, but he can't do a little sign. So they trap him or seek to trap him. And Jesus Seeing the way this is going, I have a feeling that he saw the way this is going the minute he saw them coming, you know, a bit of a red flag. But uh, when he saw these people who hate each other and hate him more coming to him with a trip and a trap and a trick and all of these things, he responds capitalizing on the ambiguity of their request. Is it a sign or is it a sign that they want? And raising the stakes, he says this. If we're going to talk about signs of either type, signs for salvation or signs for direction. When it comes to the crunch, you will only need one sign. You will only need one more sign and one only. And he calls this sign the sign of Jonah. Not exactly easy for us to understand what that is, but in Matthew 12, it's all explained in verse 40. He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish... Remember Jonah and the whale? Well, so will the Son of Man, so in the same way, will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah, in the Old Testament, was a sign. Surviving for three days in the belly of a fish was a sign. It was a miracle. This sign of Jonah proved to the people of Nineveh that God existed, that God was interested in them, that God was calling them to repentance, that God was paving a way for them to be restored in their relationship with him. And now Jesus says that sign, that Old Testament sign, was in fact a sign of another sign. It was a pre-sign, a pre-echo, a, a sort of prophecy or prototype of an even bigger, greater, ultimate sign yet to come, and that is he himself. The sign of Jonah prefigures the sign of Christ, who will be consumed not by a fish, but by the grave, and after three days will not be belched forth onto the shore of some ancient beach but will resurrect instead to eternal life for the whole world. Would you like a sign, says Jesus? All right, then, how about this? I'll give you a sign if you really want one, but just one. One more sign. I will die for you on behalf of anyone who would put their trust in me, anyone who would believe in me. And I will take upon me the curse of the law, the full weight of the burden of the law, and I will atone for my people with my own blood. I will be the sacrificial lamb for you, the Passover lamb, and I will be buried. I will 
die and be buried, and I will be sealed in a tomb for three days, and I will burst forth from that tomb, raised on the third day, guaranteeing life for anyone who would believe in me. You want a sign? How about that? The biggest, bestest, most definitive and ultimate sign you will ever need for salvation is Jesus Christ the Lord. There's not really much point in bothering with any other signs until you get this. There's not really any point in bothering with anything until you get this. There's not much point in any form of discernment or decision or turning point in life at all unless and until you've turned, in the most ultimate sense, to Christ himself. You know, should I get this car or that car? Should I marry this person? Should I buy this house? Should I take this job? You know, is it Canon or Nikon, you know, cameras? Who cares? Unless and until you turn to Christ, you're not going to take any of that with you. It's a wasted worry until you see the sign. My best friend of old is an atheist, and over the years we've gone back and forth on the whole question of whether God exists and if so whether he's revealed or not and uh, if so then how and why it matters and what it means and how you get right with him and after 23 years of argument and counter argument and quite a few beers not at the same time spaced out carefully over 23 years he said to me one day over a pint uh, last summer in fact and he said look what is your best point what is your elevator talk you know on the 40th floor, going down to the first, you've got that long to make your pitch. He said, what is the best sign uh, of what you believe that could persuade me of your case in less than one minute? I said, I need less than one second. It's Jesus. He's the only sign. What more could you need than the prophetic death and resurrection of God himself, who was told to do this. He would do this. 500 prophecies written 500 years before about every aspect of this thing, and he fulfilled them all in front of 500 people. What bigger sign could you possibly want than that? Jesus is the biggest and the best and the only and the ultimate sign for salvation that you will ever need. He is the sign. However, there are signs, and there are signs. And we're going to think about that lesser kind of a sign now. Even those who have received Jesus Christ and have seen the sign of salvation will still often need many signs for direction in their lives. Just because you're saved doesn't mean that you automatically always know what to do, does it? Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean to say that you're always right, does it? Except for you, love. You're always right. But, but yeah? 13 years. That's how you make, keep a marriage alive. So... It's true. But the annoying thing is it's true. <laughs> like, it really is true. She's always right. <laughs> Zach, I'm sorry, man. I married you. <laughs> it's just a, just a circumstantial sign that the first person I married in this church has left the room. So, he's gone to get his wife. Good. Signs and signs. Where am I? We get stuff wrong. 
Just because we're in Christ doesn't mean we're always right. Just because we have a lively faith and we're in church and in the Word, just because we have the commanding Scripture and the compelling Spirit and the counsel of the saints does not mean that we always know what to do and where to turn and where to go in in every single turn and and twist in, in life. And sometimes Christians actually, I think, because of our beliefs, will often struggle even more with decisions. We, we love God. We love the people of God. We want to get our decisions right, and we, we worry so much about them, I know. And so when you've been around the magic roundabout of life and you've checked off the, the commanding scripture and the compelling spirit and the counsel of the saints and you're still not quite certain exactly what to do, sometimes in those situations you will need a sign. Let's look at Romans 8, 28. For my proposition that uh, God can give us signs in our circumstances. And Romans 8, 28 is, is, is one of these mega verses of scripture. Uh, the, the, the preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones spent about three years on it. So um, we're not going to do that. You might be relieved to hear. There's so many other things we could take from Romans 8, 28. Such an important verse, but drawing one small minor point from it it's this we know that for those who love god all things work together for good or all circumstances for those who are called according to his purpose you see how it says all things there in romans 8 28 god is sovereign over all things he is over all circumstances he can do anything he can use anything any circumstance or situation he likes to point you in the right direction, even bad things, even bad circumstances can be used by God for ultimate good. And let's be really clear. This is undoubtedly one of the most weaponized verses of Scripture in the whole Bible. And if something horrible happens to you, it's only a matter of time before someone uses it on you You know, you fall over and you break your teeth and someone comes up and looks over you on the floor and says, ah, well, you know, all things work together for the good. (laughs) And you look up at them and you think, right, well, I'm going to break your teeth then and see how you like it. I'll give you a verse. It, It does not mean that all things are good. It doesn't mean that all circumstances are good. It just means that God can use all circumstances for good. And so it's worth asking uh, what signs there are in your life or what circumstances there are in your life, what things are going on around you in your life, good or bad or boring, neutral, uh, small or large, anything at all circumstantially in your life could be nudging you and poking you and directing you and leading you towards a decision or a turning point God's way. Any circumstances can, all things. Uh, And maybe for you it's uh, a verse of scripture that that comes up and, you know, chimes with your soul in some way. And then it comes up again, someone sends you a card and it has the verse on it. Or, you know, someone uh, gives you a gift with the verse on it. Or you're in your reading and the verse comes up. Or maybe a parallel verse and you see in the cross-reference that it references the verse. And then you're driving in your car and you've got K-Love on and and a song comes up and it's, it's the same verse in the song. And then maybe you come to church and it's followed up by a sermon on the same verse about the same thing. And, you know, you've been looking at this and thinking, what is going on? That can be how God works. 
And maybe you've been thinking about something and you've been troubled and you've kept it to yourself and told no one. And someone comes up to you over coffee and starts talking about the same thing. Uh, And maybe you've got some need in your life. Maybe it's some unfulfilled desire or maybe it's something that won't go away or some practical need that you have. And suddenly someone comes along who is able to fulfill that need in some way. You know, that's how God can use these signs to give you a nudge or a direction. No, I'm thick. Right? I'm a stupid man. And, and I, I, I just have, I have many gifts from the Holy Spirit, but discernment, it just isn't one of them. And, and, and I find it hard to read the signs. It's just, you know, a, a big truck could drive past that says, you know, marry Catherine. And I'd be like, hmm, I wonder what that means, you know. <laughs> so am I had an actual audible voice from the Holy Spirit directly himself saying, uh, marry Catherine. And, and that, that was helpful. But, you know, I, I probably would have tried anyway, because, you know, look at her, look at me, you know, who wouldn't? But, you know, it's, it, it's just, you know, we're not all that good at telling the signs and seeing the signs. And it's okay if, if, if you're wired like me. Um, I want you to ask when they build up to such a number as that, is it a coincidence or is it a, a God incidence? Because when I get nudges like this from God over and over and over and over again to the point of comedy from five or different, uh, six different people or places at once, I, what I call it is God ganging up on me. Like the one God just has to zap me from every side in every way until I finally get it. That is one of the ways that God can use to lead us uh, in his direction. And you see, don't you, how much more vague these signs are the fourth CS is, than the, the previous principles on the magic roundabout. You know, I mean, the Bible's pretty obvious. God says, do it, do it. says, don't do it, don't do it. It's, it's not hard. We make it hard, but it shouldn't be. You know, it really is that clear. Uh, when the Holy Spirit is giving you some prophetic gift, you know, like the ability to raise the dead, it's not very hard to discern that God wants you to do it. When the Council of Saints and every member of your staff team and vestry says the exact same thing, it's not very hard to see, you know, what you should do. But sometimes uh, we don't quite know what to do, and that's where these signs can come in. And every single one of these principles, weaker though they get, the further round the roundabout you go, must always come back to the first. This sign, is it resonant or dissonant with the commands of Holy Scripture? We must always look back to the word first and foremost. We must always use these latter principles in light of the first. But uh, if you've been round the magic roundabout a bit, a few times, and you're still not quite sure, you've crossed off the first three, sometimes when it comes to the crunch, it can be little more than a circumstantial sign from the Lord that nudges you his ways. Uh, When we were discerning whether we should move to the U.S. or not, uh, just in a very general sense, there were some other job offers back home, and they were really good job offers. Like one of them was an associateship, which is way better than being a rector. Uh, one of them was at a Baptist church, and they don't have to wear robes. So, you know, it was looking good. And um, we just had this sense that maybe something in the U.S. would, would happen. And I, I was on the phone to my friend Marcus, who works for the church that invented these five CSs. And he said, do you remember your Alpha course, Alex? I said, yeah, I became a Christian on one. He said, do you remember the five CSs? I lied. I said, yeah, I remember them vividly. (laughs) 
just refresh my memory so that they're codified in the right order, will you? And he refreshed my memory, and I wrote them down. And we worked our way through the five CSs about whether we should move to the U.S., and we decided that actually there was nothing ungodly about the idea. We would just need some signs to see if it was the right way. And uh, as we moved uh, through this magic roundabout, we, we decided these are the signs. We would need someone to fly us to America uh, for an interview. And then having landed in America, they would need to narrow it down a little bit from just all churches of the United States <laughs> to, to maybe you know one or two in some particular area. Uh, and then we realized that if where we were to move here, uh, me being a foreigner, we would need some church to help us with uh, an immigration attorney. And then uh, being foreign with no credit uh, records or history, we would need someone to provide accommodation for us because we couldn't rent or buy anything. And uh, because I'm foreign, we would also need, uh, you know, our electric system is different. We would need some things in the house that worked, like a washing machine and a tumble dryer and an oven and, and a kettle. Really important thing. I didn't know at that stage that this was a barbarous land that boils its water in, 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 uh, in a microwave, like a, what a you know, it, it disgracefully shaming itself in the process. I just foolishly thought yin's used kettles like we do. And, um, you know, I, I, I commend that noble device to you if you've not yet bought one. We are nonetheless off topic. Uh, no one is offering that shopping list. At all. I mean, of course they're not, right? There are thousands of amazing and unemployed ministers in the United States. I thought there's no point in even looking. You know, what a waste of time. And then God came to us. The call came. The archbishop is in London. Would you like to have a beer with him? We have a little beer. Guess what? He's got a ton of Delta air miles and is willing to fly you to Pittsburgh. And guess what? There's a church there. And guess what? They might be interested. And guess what? They have an immigration attorney and a Courtney. And guess what? (laughs) They've got a house. It's like the only one in Pennsylvania. And it's got a washing machine and a tumble dryer and an oven. And and they claim to have a kettle. (laughs) Now, it's a bait and switch because when I got there, it was just some stupid pot that you boil on the stove. But, you know... (laughs) They did their best with what they knew at the time. Uh, you know, I was like, even I saw all of this going on and thought, hmm, it could be a sign. <laughs> even the biggest and the best and the clearest and the most joyous and wonderful of signs and what fun we've had, you know, um, it can be really easy to miss. It is possible even for really discerning people to miss really obvious signs. Don't be hard on yourself if that's you. Let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 12, verse 1, for what I think might be the best biblical example of godly people missing obvious signs. Camille even laughed as she read it out, which is absolutely the right thing to do, because it's comedy. Acts, chapter 12. So the early church, doesn't sound funny at first, the early church is being persecuted horribly, uh, and about that time, it says, Acts, chapter 12, page numbers in the bulletin. About that time, Herod the king had laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Why not just kill him with the sword? It's like James Bond baddies, right? You know, they put him in some ridiculously complicated machine, which is somehow escapable in bizarre circumstances with a special watch. Right? He's a bond baddie, Herod. It's the only explanation for this. 
And verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but because Herod is a bond baddie, earnest prayer for Peter was made to God by the church. Not just prayer, earnest prayer, fervent prayer. It's a word to do with bubbling, boiling, hot kind of effervescent stuff. It's a Pittsburgh word. It's a cauldron of molten steel. It's an intense, resolute, burning, boiling kind of a prayer that's going on for Peter's release. This is the Church of Acts praying like only the Church of Acts can pray. And that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, Edu, take note, look up, open your eyes, have a gander, have a butcher's hook. Notice, look, got any rhyming slang. Look what's happening. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Peter is broken out of jail by an angel. And it says that they passed the first and the second guard, verse 10, and an iron gate, which verse 10 says, opened for them of its own accord. I want you to notice, with the Bible open in front of you, how Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, builds the drama, how the text builds, how the the problem gets greater. There are two soldiers, there are two chains, there are unnumbered sentries, there is a door, there is a guard, there is a second guard. He's naked. There's an iron gate that opens of its own accord, and there is an angel. What we are being told right here with this lasagna of detail is that this is an absolute impossibility. This is a miracle. This is a sign. The circumstantial signs of God's direction are outstandingly clear to Peter. God wants Peter out. This is the Apostle Peter. And what I love about this is verse 12. It takes him until he gets outside and it says, when he realized this, don't you just love it? When he realized this, like, oh, so it wasn't when the chains fell off or, or, or his clothes got put on or the guards didn't notice him or the sentries didn't notice him or the door opened or the other door opened or an angel came. It was when he got in the street that he noticed, hmm, I wonder if God is up to something here. <laughs> he's following the signs, though. He's being obedient. And uh, he immediately, verse 12, he does exactly, when the signs dawn on him, he does exactly where God is, it, it, you know, goes exactly where God is sending him. He went to the house of Mary, where many were gathered together and were praying. What were they praying for, verse 5? Who are they praying for at the prayer meeting? Peter. They're praying for Peter. So Peter is now outside of the very prayer meeting, which is praying for the release of Peter. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Verse 14, recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate outside in the street. Don't you just love this girl? Like, how hard is this girl? Right, he's escaped one Herod, two soldiers, two chains, a door, 
clothing, unnumbered sentries, two guards, an iron gate, and an entire city of hostile Jews. But the thing that stops him into getting into his own prayer meeting is a little girl called Rhoda. You know, I want to... She's Brickhard. I want to put her in a cage with Conor McGregor and see who wins. Awesome. Like almost as, as hard as my daughter Hannah, who could knock a man out with one punch. <laughs> Taught her that. It's the only skill she'll ever need. He's escaped the Palestinian equivalent of a supermax prison. Some very early and somewhat obscure variant manuscripts on fragment papyri and vellum manuscripts suggest even that Stu and Gail Simpson were in there with the Kairos prison ministry. It's a real jail. Right, there's not just one door, it is the slammer, choky, the big house, not something easy to escape. And after all of those things, he's kept out of all people by a girl. I want to say that to Peter, you know, ah, you got beaten by a girl, young girl. Perhaps even funnier, I think it is funnier, is the reaction of the meeting itself, the one having the earnest prayer meeting. Because Rhoda goes to report the good news. As often is the case in Scripture, it's the young and it's the women who report the good news first. And she said to them that Peter has been released and he's outside. And they said to her, as is often the case by the great leaders of the Bible, you are out of your mind. Dear God, please release Peter from jail. <clears throat> Excuse me. Peter has been released from jail. Shh, don't be ridiculous. We're praying for the release of Peter. <laughs> and all the time, he's standing out there, knocking on the door. Stage whisper through the letterbox. It's me, Peter. Can you let me in, please? There's people looking at me funny in the street. <laughs> and they're like, what is this racket? You know, we're trying to have a prayer meeting here. We've got girls coming in and out, weirdos banging at the door. You know, come on, be quiet. We're trying to pray. I'm wondering what greater sign there could possibly be for the release of Peter than the release of Peter. <laughs> it's pure comedy. But they do not see the signs. The Church of Acts, the greatest church, fails to see the signs because they're too busy praying to look. And sometimes, here's the lesson for us on this magic roundabout of life, sometimes we're busy. Godly people get very busy with prayer. Sometimes we're busy with worry. Sometimes we're busy with prayer. Sometimes we're paralyzed by our decisions when, in fact, what we're called to do is take a day off and be still, to calm down, to lie face down before the Lord and just observe and listen. Church, stop typing in data to your spiritual GPS and, and, and let the processor catch up a bit and see what comes up on the map the church is called to be still if you're going to have a conversation with god sometimes you're going to have to shut up the psalm appointed for today says this marvelously echoed in the anthem which a member of the vestry asked the the choir to sing this morning i will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways I love that word ways. They spelt it wrong, you know, but they did their best. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things. If you are stuck today, this very day, with a really tough decision, 
If you've been anguished these past few weeks, perhaps in Lent, turning point season, uh, about something to let go or, or something to take up, something is disturbing you or worrying you or has been on your heart and you've been round the magic roundabout a bit and you've, you've checked off some of these principles and you still feel lost, I want you this week, this Lent, to stop. Stop and look. Just calm down. In the circumstances of your life, God may already have placed many circumstantial signs around you. And sometimes those signs will be very subtle. They'll be very hard to see. And sometimes they'll be traumatic. And they'll be very hard to accept. And sometimes they will be miraculous and they will be hard to believe. But church, we will never see any of them unless and until we stop and look. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sign of Jesus Christ, the sign for salvation, and the signs that you give to us in day-to-day life for direction. And Lord God, some of those signs are subtle, some are hard, and some are miraculous, and we may not see them. So please, Heavenly Father, give us grace in all things to stop. Would you open our eyes to meditate? Would we fix our eyes on your ways? And would you open our eyes so that we may behold wondrous things. Guide us and lead us, we pray, sovereign Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.